How many years have flown by and we seem to end up in the same place as we were the year before? If we want to grow in our relationship with God, there's one thing we can do in 2024 that will make more difference than anything else. Read the Bible. I'll be reading the Bible this year, and I invite you to read it with me in a Bible reading program called Reading the Bible Lands. It includes Bible Lands photos, videos, and devotionals, and live Zoom calls with me. Find out more at readingthebiblelands.com. This episode of Live the Bible is brought to you by Walking the Bible Lands. If you haven't been to Israel yet or you'd like to relive your tour, these on-site videos are the next best thing to being there. Check it out at walkingthebiblelands.com. Hello and welcome to Live the Bible. My name is Wayne Stiles, and this is the podcast that helps you connect the Bible right to your daily life. In today's episode, we're switching things up a bit from our regular format. I'll be answering questions about the Bible and the Christian life and more. When I put the call out, I received back nine pages of questions. In fact, there are so many good questions, we've decided to break this into two episodes. So without further delay, let's get right into this week's podcast. We had some great questions, and once again, if you weren't here last week or don't remember what we're talking about, uh, we're going to do a Q&A this week and next, which represent questions that were sent in about the Bible, about the Christian life, or you're, you're going to see about anything, which is outside of my realm of expertise, but we're going to give it a shot anyway, and thank God for Google. Google is great when we uh, try to answer questions about the Bible. Have you ever, like, Googled a a Bible question? Yeah, well, be careful with that. (laughs) It's great for finding verses. It's not always so great for finding answers. So, uh, first of all, let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. And in so doing, let me just sort of set some ground rules, if you don't mind. I will try to be very brief, and the problem with these great questions is that each of them could be a message, if not a series. So trying to squeeze a bunch of these into one is challenging, but this is our goal, is to try to get through them and to talk about what the Bible says about some of these. And I'll also provide, after each one or after each clump of of similar ones, an opportunity for you to ask clarification. I'm not going to read who asked the question, because that really doesn't matter. This question's for all of us. But, uh, and I say that also to say, if you have a point of clarification, that doesn't mean you asked the question. So, um, so will we, Dave, will we have the mic? Dave and John, quit hugging in the booth. And <laughs> will we have a, a microphone, a live mic that we can pass around? Because we may need it after each of these sections. So. So in 1 Peter 2, we're going to look at the first question, which is a common question, and it is one that we all want to try to wrap our arms around. And the question is simply this, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to good people? And we could start, I guess, with the obvious answer, that, uh, which isn't the question, but on one level, there are no good people. And so the question might be, why do good things happen to bad people? Which is really the context in our lives. But the question is a good one. Those of us who truly want to please God, 
why in the world does the Lord allow such pain and suffering in our lives? Well, this is a question throughout the Bible. In fact, it is the, the major theme of the Psalms. You read the Psalms, you see these, this book of prayers in which typically the, the, the psalmist is crying out, God, why have you let my life get so lousy? I'm going to trust in you is the solution. And the Psalms just follow that pattern. But Peter writes a whole book, First uh, Peter, on this issue of a Christian's perspective on suffering. And we're just going to look at a couple of passages here that sort of narrow in maybe a point of application and clarification for us. First Peter 2, look down at verse 19. First Peter 2, 19. It's in the context of bearing up under circumstances that are unfair and circumstances of suffering. Uh, Peter writes, This finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right... And suffer for it, you patiently endure it. This finds favor with God. So, notice two perspectives here. First of all, Peter says, Hey, when we sin and bad things happen to us, it's kind of like, What do you expect? I mean, this is sort of what that makes sense. But how do we view life when we are doing what's right, all things considered? Obviously, we're not perfect, but we're We're living a life that seeks to honor God and honor Jesus Christ, and yet we're suffering. And twice here Peter says, we find favor with God when we suffer for living right. So why do bad things happen to good people? First of all, it's not because God is displeased with you or there's necessarily something wrong in your life. Peter is saying you're doing what's right and you're suffering. Um, Think about Job. He's a great example. He suffered because he was doing what was right. Think about the life of the apostles. Every one of them, except maybe John, died a martyr's death. And these are Jesus' apostles. And, of course, Christ himself is the ultimate model. In fact, that's whom Peter uses here in the very next verse. Look at verse 21. Peter writes, For, in other words, he is explaining... For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So, talk about a person who didn't deserve it. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, lived the only perfect life that's ever been lived, and yet he died the most horrible death that's ever been died. That seems unjust, and yet this is exactly, this was part of God's will. Jesus is not only our motivation, but he is our model. And we're told, again, what he didn't do. He didn't revile in return. He didn't justify uh, sinning because of the sin that it was done to him. Instead, look at what he did do. It says that he kept entrusting himself 
to him who judges righteously, verse 23. And that's what we should do. Now, just because Peter lays it out here doesn't mean it's easy. It is hard. This is a hard assignment, which is why only Jesus could ever do it. But this is our task, that when we are in an unfair or unjust situation, the response is not to return evil for evil or to curse God, but as Christ did, to keep keep entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Meaning, Jesus knew in his mind, Father, you know the truth. You know what is, uh, what's unjust about my situation. And I am trusting you to make it right one day. This was Jesus' mindset, and this is our mindset as well. A couple of other verses here in 1 Peter. Look at chapter 1, verse 6. 1 verse 6. So to answer the question, why do bad things happen to good people? It's not because good people are bad or because God is angry. It's because somehow in God's sovereign will, just as it was with Christ, it was his will that Jesus suffer so that Christ could give him glory. Um, That's not an easy thing to hear. Remember when Saul, Saul of Tarsus was converted, One of the things that Jesus told Ananias, who was to go to Paul, is that uh, Paul or Saul was a chosen vessel and said a number of things about Saul. And then he also said, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. I've read that for years and thought, oh, Lord, does he really have to suffer? I mean, it's like, I feel like you're sort of grinding your heel into poor Saul of Tarsus. And the reality is, God's good plan includes struggle for us. Chapter 1, verse 6. Peter writes, same context, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter says, look, keep it all in context. The suffering that you're going through right now is real, but it is also temporary, and it's necessary. Peter uses those words, if necessary. Distressed by various trials. And then he says, but don't forget the the coming of Jesus, the revelation of Jesus Christ. When Christ comes, it's going to all be made right, and you'll be able to look back and understand then what we can't understand now. One more place here in 1 Peter, and then we're going to flip to Psalms real quickly. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, very last chapter, almost last few verses, as Peter summarizes the book Chapter 5, verse 6. This is so good. Peter writes, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. So look at that. Look at the grammar of that. I'm looking at the New American Standard and the verb or the command, humble yourselves, has in verse 7 that word casting, 
attached to it. In other words, how do you humble yourself? Verse 7, casting all your anxiety on him. We humble ourselves in our circumstance of suffering by casting our anxiety, all of it, Peter says, on him. Why? Because he cares for us. Because he cares for us. Peter goes on, verse 8. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, but resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. That's something else to cling to. When we're struggling, we tend to think it's just us. It's unfortunately not um, a context where we can share suffering. Most of the time when we pray, um, and even in this class when prayer requests are shared, and they're personal, they are the safe personal prayer requests. We don't really share the deep down, deep, deep down suffering that we all deal with. And so we tend to feel like we're alone. Peter says you're not alone. In fact, the same experiences of suffering, he says, are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And then he gives us this wonderful verse 10, after you have suffered for a little while, that's this life, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So if this question is really nagging you, why do bad things happen to good people? The real question is, why do bad things happen to me? Read 1 Peter, the book of 1 Peter. And I challenge you, I challenge you, read 1 Peter, the whole book, every day for a month. Let Peter's words soak into your mind and begin to renew your mind. Now, look at Psalm 42, and we're going to finish this question there. Psalm 42. Where are Psalms? That's the Old Testament, right? Psalm 42. Oh, I've got it marked. This is written by the sons of Korah, and we won't read the whole thing. Great, great uh, psalm, but there's a couple of really very helpful things when we are wondering why in the world God's allowing bad things to happen in our lives. Um, First five verses or four verses sort of set the context. Basically, he's saying, um, I've got all these things that are going wrong in my life. I've got overwhelming anxiety. And then he asks in verse five, look at verse five, why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. So notice he's talking to himself. Why are you distressed on my soul? That is such a helpful observation because we do that, don't we? We talk to ourselves, sometimes out loud. Mostly we don't tell ourselves, you know, You're really awesome, Wayne. I can't remember the last time I've said that. (laughs) I can't remember if I've ever said that. But I I can tell you that I've told myself, you idiot. 
right? Self-talk is something that we listen to. And this, the sons of Korah ask this question, why are you in despair, O my soul? He's counseling himself. And, he's, and he asks, why? Why have you become so troubled? And then he flips it and he says, hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. That when you are in despair and self-talk is running over you, he gives the picture here of probably the, the Dan Falls up in north Israel, the, the Banias Falls that just roll over and over, verse 6 refers to them. And he says, when despair feels like that to you, let your self-talk be healthy talk and redirect it to God. He says the same thing at the la- in the very last verse, verse 11. Why are you in despair, O my soul? This is what you're feeling. Why have you become disturbed within me? That's emotion washing over you. When you feel this way, here's what you say. Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him. This is a look at the future, not at the present. The future. Hope gives us that anchor of the soul, Hebrews says. And that's really the whole theme of 1 Peter as well. Uh, The theme of 1 Peter is not just suffering, but it's hope. It's hope in the context of suffering. So that is a pretty superficial answer to that question, but I'll ask, are there any, anything to follow up with that? Okay, Mike in the back there. Microphone, I should say, not Mike. <laughs> I meant, yeah, we need a microphone in the back. Not Mike in the back, Lawson. A lot of you that have been in the class for a long time remember my special lady, Kay. This is a woman, she was the three cancer survivor. She had over 20 surgeries under general anesthetic. She was disabled by the brain tumor that they removed, paralyzed her left side. And while she was in the hospital for three and a half months, she gave out over 70 pamphlets of, excuse me a second, that... uh, basically was talking about people would ask her, you know, come in and talk to her about stuff. And she had these little pamphlets that were talking about God and how God, God's faithfulness through our suffering. Good. And one thing, you know, people would, you know, you hear people say, why me? You know what Kay said? Why not me? She was a very special lady that loved the Lord a lot. That, that made I don't know that, if that helps anybody or not. But. That's a wonderful illustration of exactly what we're talking about. Thank you. All right. Anybody else have a, a question or clarification on what we said? Good. Uh, if you want a good book on this subject, Johnny Erickson Tata, who is no stranger to suffering, wrote a wonderful book, and the title of it escapes me. It's like uh, The Mystery of Suffering or something. Maybe somebody can use our friend Google and find that. Would you? And then when we do, just raise your hand and I'll call it out. But it's something like that. The Mystery of Suffering. Johnny Erickson taught him. All right, here's the next question. Uh, are there human beings that God knows will never accept Christ in their life as they live on earth? 
those that God knows in advance that they will not accept him when he creates them? Uh, I love this because it's a yes-no question. The answer is yes. Okay, next question. (laughs) Actually, there are several questions that relate to this, so I'll just read them here together. And while we're doing that, if you would, turn to Romans chapter 5, and we'll look at that that passage as it relates to this. Um, Here's the next question that relates. Does God create humans knowing or planning that some will go to hell? Does he know in advance which ones will go to hell? And yet another question. Could you help us reconcile predestination, election, and free will in ten words or less? (laughs) Yes, that is a yes-no question as well. The answer to that is no. Well, Romans chapter 5. This is such a common question because it is a big problem in our minds. And so we'll, we'll look at it, try to make it simpler, or maybe we'll just muddy the water even more. Uh, Romans chapter 5, look at verse 12. There's no, way, no good way to get into this other than just to start. Uh, Paul writes in verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, I don't know what your translation says, and admittedly, I've not looked at other translations, but I have looked at the original language on this very closely, and the New American Standard is a very faithful translation to it. I'll read it again. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world. Who is that referring to? Adam. And death through sin, meaning death entered into the world through sin, and so, here's the result, Death spread to all men, all people. And then look at this next word, because all sinned. Paul's theology got real deep real fast, didn't it? Adam's choice, our results. Adam sinned, but as a result of Adam's sin, death spread to all people because all sinned. In other words, We were all somehow in Adam when Adam sinned. That is mind-boggling. Some wrestle with the fact, uh, with the option, were we simply physically in Adam, which we were, we know that, because Adam and Eve were the beginning of the human race, so we were all in them, to look at it that way. Or was Adam merely our representative? This is not a question that I will answer. But it sets us up for verse 18. Look at verse 18. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through the one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. Now, wait a minute, Paul. All men or all people can't have it both ways, and yet Paul just said that. As a result of one transgression through Adam, so in Adam, everybody's condemned. In Christ, who's the the one act of righteousness, everyone is justified. So which is it? Well, Paul's point in verse 18 is the potential of each man's decision. Adam's decision gave the potential for the whole human race to be condemned. In fact, we were told in verse 12, that happened. All became 
totally depraved or lost the moment Adam bit the fruit. But we're also told that through one act of righteousness, that is Jesus' death on the cross, there resulted justification of life to all people. In other words, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, there was potential for the salvation of everybody in Adam, all of us, the whole human race. Christ died on the cross and paid for the sin of the whole human race, which Adam caused, you might say in a sense, when he sinned. So that's the potential. All condemned, all saved. Hello everyone, Wayne here. If you've ever thought about taking a journey to Israel to see where Jesus actually walked, or if you'd like to walk in the footsteps of the Apostle Paul on his amazing missionary journeys, well then I invite you to come with me. Registrations are open for my upcoming tours and extensions to Israel, Egypt, Turkey, Greece, Jordan, and Rome. That's right, whatever part of the Bible lands you'd like to see, we're probably going there over the course of the next year. You can see videos, complete itineraries, and all that you need to know at waynestyles.com tours. I hope you'll join me, and I promise you will never read the Bible the same after you go to the lands of the Bible. That's waynestyles.com tours. And now, back to the podcast. Christ died on the cross and paid for the sin of the whole human race, which Adam caused, you might say in a sense, when he sinned. So that's the potential. All condemned, all saved. Here's the actual, verse 19. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. There's the actual. Many will be condemned, many will be made righteous. So you've got the the potential in verse 18 and verse 19. You've got the actual. So Adam's choice was our results. Christ's choice is also our results. I think a lot of times when we ask this question about predestination and human will and all that, we sort of approach it with the mindset that we are neutral, that we can go either way. They were sort of born neutral, and uh, we decide, you know, we're going to go left or right when we grow up. The reality is we're born fallen. And any of you who have children know that because your children grow up proving it. You didn't have to teach your kids to sin. You do your best to teach them not to sin. In fact, you teach your kids to sin by your own sin, and me too. And I'll be teaching my grandson how to sin before long. And he'll be teaching me how to sin before long because we are sinners to the core and we grow up proving it. So we are not born in this neutral state where we get to decide left or right. Um, Our children prove that we are born fallen. So how does this work with predestination? This is actually all going to answer the question. Look at chapter 9 now. Very, very interesting and very, very difficult section. Chapter 9, verse 13. Paul writes, Just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. Now, pause. Love and hate there don't mean love and hate. They mean chosen and not chosen in the context. I know it says love and hate, but you have to interpret it in context. Jacob I have chosen, Esau I have not chosen. And then verse 14, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. 
Aren't you glad Paul asks what we're all thinking? God, before even Jacob or Esau were born, you had chosen one and not the other. Isn't that unjust? This is Paul's question. There's no injustice with God, is there? And his answer is, may it never be. And then he goes on to give further uh, explanation. He says, verse 15, For he says to Moses, and he illustrates, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says of Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me, again, Paul, thank you, ask the obvious question. Why does he still find fault for who resists his will? You see what Paul's asking? If these people are determined by God that God's going to use one for uh, his glory and one for, uh, for mercy and one for uh, the bad stuff, why, do, why does he find fault in us? Because I'm just growing up, as it were, doing what God's designed me to do. Who resists his will? I can't resist the will of God. Verse 20, on the contrary, oh, this is hard to read, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? Now, our problem with this passage is we read it from the human perspective that we sort of deserve to make our choices. And Paul's not done. I mean, the book of Romans doesn't end with chapter 9. So be encouraged. Good news is coming. But right now, it's hard to read because what we're reading is just the strict focus on the sovereignty of God. And the sovereignty of God when it comes to election and predestination is a very uncomfortable doctrine. We're really comfortable with the fact that we can choose or not choose Jesus Christ. We are real uncomfortable with predestination because we don't see how our choice fits in. This is exactly what Paul is addressing. But notice in verse 21, he uses this picture of the potter and the clay, and he says, he uses a couple of words here that are very interesting by illustration. He says, same lump. There weren't two lumps. There's one lump. Everybody's lost. And I think this is part of our problem when we think about this whole issue. The whole issue is not, the situation is not where God looked at the whole human race and he says, okay, we're going to number off everyone, get in a line, one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two, heaven, hell, heaven, hell, heaven, hell. <laughs> it's not like that. It's everybody's going to hell. And God in his mercy says, I select this one and this one and this one and this one to be an object of mercy. We started off in Adam, all condemned. And by God's grace, he selects some for mercy. And look at, look at verse 22. He continues this, and this might help a little bit, but it... Honestly, our minds just can't wrap around it. But this is what he writes from the same lump illustration. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath 
and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. So we're talking about that same lump, remember? And he says, God willing to demonstrate his wrath and his power. He is willing to demonstrate his wrath and his power in the wrath going on that lump that deserves condemnation. These that are prepared for destruction. But notice verse 23. He uh, endured with patience these vessels of wrath. Verse 23, and he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Notice the details of the difference. The lump, or the, the, the everybody, was prepared for destruction. Those vessels of mercy were prepared beforehand for glory. So, all were condemned, verse 22, but some were predestined from that all con- condemnation for glory. So, we could get real persnickety and say, well, you're splitting hairs. I mean, to predestine some is to predestine others. And yet, God doesn't share it that way. He says, in a context which the whole human race was lost, in my mercy, I have predestined some to be saved. It's an emphasis on his mercy, not on why everyone didn't get the chance to be saved, which brings us to chapter 10. Now, again, this sounds real, maybe profound, but chapter 10 comes right after chapter 9. Right? And in chapter 10, we read verse 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. It's saying the same thing twice. It's saying the same thing twice. Heart you, heart you believe, mouth you confess. It's the same thing. So, wait a minute, Paul. Now in chapter 10, you're telling me that if I believe in Jesus, I'll be saved. In fact, we're told in verse 13, quoting from Joel, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever. Not just the elect, though we know from chapter 9 that it is the elect who will do it. So we have chapter 9, God chooses me. We have chapter 10, I choose God. Right there together, without any apology on the Apostle Paul of saying, I know it kind of sounds like I'm contradicting myself. We've got both of those side by side. How do we reconcile that? That's the question. How can God choose me when I'm to choose God? Well, we're not held responsible for understanding chapter 9. I mean, it's there. God reveals it. But as Dr. Hannah has said so well so many times, God has revealed himself truly, but he has not revealed himself fully. What he shows us in Romans 9 introduces us to his sovereignty and gives us as much as he wants us to know, and yet it still makes us real uncomfortable. So chapter 10 comes right along to say, by the way, this is what you're held accountable for. If you believe, you'll be saved. If you don't believe, you will be condemned, or you will remain condemned. We aren't held responsible for understanding chapter 9, God's sovereignty. We are held responsible for chapter 10, that if you believe in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. 
So we don't know who's elect and who's not, so we share the gospel with everybody. You don't know if you are or not, so you place your faith in Jesus Christ. You don't wait for whatever. Um, illustration. My dog and I went for a drive this weekend. It was a great drive. I opened up the back of my uh, Toyota Prius, and she jumps in the back just ready to go. She doesn't understand how pistons work. She she doesn't understand how the the gas ignites and all that, and that's where I'm going to stop because I don't understand it either. But I could understand it if I wanted to, but why? My dog can't understand it. She can't even tie her shoes. But she believes it. She believes that car is going to go, which is why she gets in it. And we're able to go down the road together, me understanding why a car works and her not understanding it, right along together. So Romans 10, uh, Romans 9 of God's sovereignty and all the other places. Ephesians 1 also talks about predestination. Predestination was not invented by John Calvin. It was not even invented by Paul, though Paul communicates it best to us. We see it all throughout the scriptures, even in the Old Testament. But what we can understand is chapter 10, that we must believe. Another illustration. Last weekend, I held my precious grandson. In fact, have you seen? <laughs> see, here's his picture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Held him, and as I was holding him, I thought about this. You know, the kid can't even change his own diaper. And yet, within my arms is the potential. He has all he needs, except for a few years and some instruction. He has all he needs potentially in himself to be a grown-up man, to be able to talk, to make sense, to read the Bible, to communicate, have a life, to do all that God designed him to do. But now, he can't do anything but the few things that he does. And, but... But it's all there. It's all just waiting for him to mature. That being said, you can turn there if you can get there in time, or just listen, which might be better, to 1 Corinthians 13. Listen to this. Paul writes, When I was a child, and I think about my little baby grandson, and you can think about your context as well. 1 Corinthians 13, 11, When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I have been fully known. See, he uses the illustration of a child saying, kids act like kids. When they grow up, they don't act like kids anymore. And then he says, we're the same way with this life. We see in a mirror dimly, like a kid's understanding. But when we grow up, when the, how does he say it? Uh, I will know face to face. When I'm face to face with the Lord, now I know in part, then I will know fully. So this whole issue with the sovereignty of God and the free will of man It teaches both. It seems a contradiction only because we think and reason like a child. But one day, all the potential that we have within us to understand, God is going to mature us and give us that understanding that we don't have now. 
about this very difficult doctrine. All right, so any follow-up on that? Lawson, we've got a couple right here. Sharon's got her hand high. Okay, I uh, have for years used an illustration, and I don't know if it's a good one or not. So my question to you is critique this illustration and tell me not to use it anymore if it's bad. Okay. But the illustration is if, if salvation is like a door that says, whosoever will may come, if I walk through that door and turn around and look at the back side of the door, it says, chosen before the foundation of the world. I think it's a great illustration. So it's okay. Yeah, I think All it's right. a great illustration because what the door represents is... Jesus. Is, well, it, it represents Jesus, but it also represents where we are. On this side of the door in this life, we don't see the clarity of the other side where we will. Okay, thanks. So, but yeah, that's a, that's a great illustration. Really good. Okay, up front here, Lawson. Thank you. I have a point of clarification about uh, belief. Uh, in uh, James 2.19, if I remember that, Satan also believed that there is one God. And also, to us, in John 3.16, we say, if you believe, you have eternal life. So, what's the difference between the two? Good. Now, the in First uh, Timothy 4.10, uh, it says, trust in the Lord. It's a way of showing your belief. But uh, when I look on another version, in John 14.12, uh, it says, if you do the work of Jesus Christ, it's a sign of belief. So in my mind, I conclude that believing is trusting and obeying the Lord. And in response to that, that's why in, uh, if I remember it right, in uh, Hebrew 10, 24, 25, Paul said that uh, we should try to stir up one another to love one another, one another, and to do good work. And also emphasized by Jesus Christ in John 13, 34 to 35, there's a new commandment. Your question is? Yeah, my question, no, no, I'm just clarifying. Is it uh, really uh, the belief is uh, really trust and obedience, or okay. So, what is belief? Is yeah. your question? Yeah. What is belief? And you were what asking, using the great illustration. In fact, someone asked this question. Was it you that asked the question? With the someone asked the question, what's the difference in belief? And used the example in James of the the demons yeah, yeah. who believe That's right. uh, and shudder. Well, two different types of belief or faith. There, uh, one is just a, a, a cognitive belief. Uh, like I believe that George Washington lived, though I didn't, I've never seen him. But I'm not trusting George for anything. I believe that he existed. It's cognitive belief, but there's no faith in George Washington. Um, 
So the, the demons are obviously very aware of who Jesus was. We see their testimony throughout the Gospels, and Jesus told them to be quiet. So but their faith in Jesus as the Son of God is just a belief that he is. They're not trusting him for anything. The difference for us is that we're called to, to take the next step, that uh, belief in Christ is not just a cognitive awareness of the fact that he's the Son of God, that he died on the cross, but then there is the, the, um, the additional element of trust, that I am now placing my trust in Christ for what he did when he died on the cross. That's the, the essential difference there. So, Wayne, yes or no? Did God know before he created me that I would accept Christ? Yes. Okay. That's foreknowledge and predestination at its best. So and my, omniscience, yeah. So in, in light of Romans 10, my understanding is that it's not our decision entirely that we have to be, that God has to enable it through the Holy Spirit. So he has to do that in order for me to be saved. Oh, Harry. You need a hug. Here. Okay, you took, you took the words out of my mouth. Listen. Yes, yes. The question, well, the, his clarification is what I'll basically just add on to. But in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, is a great verse for exactly what Harry was saying. And that we... the. the Here's, here's how I have sort of harmonized this in my mind, and Harry, thank you for reminding me because I was probably going to forget it and move on, and it, I think it's a very helpful point. How can we harmonize this? God chooses me, I choose God. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4 is a great uh, insight that we're told that Satan, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And then Paul goes on, we don't preach ourselves, we preach Jesus, verse 6, for God who said, the same God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So, it seems that scripture is saying the way that this works itself out, predestination and election works in our lives, that at some point in our lives, God's going to lift the blinders that is election, predestination working, so that we can see clearly what we can't see otherwise. And when you see the gospel clearly, that you are culpable, you are bound for damnation apart from the grace of God, but Jesus has died on the cross for your sins, and all you got to do is believe it. When you see that clearly, who isn't going to accept that wonderful gift? But you have to see it clearly. You and I have all experienced when we share Christ with people and... They look at you like you're speaking, you know, Chinese or something, unless you're in China. So, all right, well, we're two questions down. I know you will, because it comes up every time. Now, honestly, these are probably two of the most difficult, which is why we gave it the most time. The rest of these should clip along a little faster. So, in one sense, I'm sorry it took so long, but in another sense... That's what it takes, I think, to, to make it through some of these. Yes? Yeah, read them out loud. That's it. Suff, suff, suffering in the sovereignty of God. <laughs> 
Suffering and the Sovereignty of God by Johnny Erickson Tata. Read that book. Read that book. All right, let's pray. Father God, your Son Christ was the master at asking questions. To get us to think on levels that take us deeper than the surface. And as we have raised these questions and many more to come, it takes us deeper. It causes us to search the scriptures, to seek your face, and to find answers. And thank you, Lord, that every time we look, we see your grace on the page. That even in the, the uncomfortable doctrine of election and predestination, we also have the comforting promise that whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And it is this that we cling to and praise you for. Though while we can't understand uh, sovereignty, uh, a child can understand the gospel. And so we thank you for opening our eyes to that. And we pray for any whose eyes are still cloudy, who still see in a mirror dimly, that you would open their eyes in a way that they might understand the truth of the beautiful gospel and Jesus' gift for them. We pray for the week or two ahead of us as we look at these, the rest of these questions and ask that you would continue to be with us and give us insight into your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Live the Bible. Wow, we got through two questions. As much as I want to answer as many questions as possible in these episodes, some require a deeper level of answer than others. But next time, we'll continue this Q&A format and answer a few more questions that have come in. I hope you'll join me then for Live the Bible. And I'd also like to say if this podcast has encouraged you, I'm asking you to help me keep it going. You can now give a tax-deductible gift to help share the Live the Bible podcast with literally thousands of people each week. To give a one-time or monthly donation, just go to livethebiblepodcast.com and click on Donate. That's livethebiblepodcast.com and click on Donate. Thanks so much and God bless. My friend, I hope you will read the Bible in 2024, and I'd love for us to read it together, seeing the places where it all happened. Check it out now at readingthebiblelands.com.